You know, speaking of the of the missing the train, uh, you know this. Uh, I I I are you enjoying Watergate as much as I am? <laughs> really? Are you, Nick? I mean, it, 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 uh, what a great bunch of guys all sitting there looking concerned. You know, I tell you, it's a it's a fantastic. Uh, uh, it's a, a real side show. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things, though, that I, I regret about the whole thing about uh, Watergate is that H. Uh, L. Mencken did not live to see it. And he could have, he could have written some real fantastic pieces, you know, set them to music, banjos playing the whole bit. And uh, of course, like any uh, one of the things that sets America apart from all other countries of all other times is that America's troubles, whatever they might be, domestic, international. Uh, governmental or people-wise are immediately turned to commercial gain by those people who decry America's uh, hang-up on money. You notice this? So there's guys turning out LPs, you know, <laughs> often announcing the venality of the uh, Watergate types, and they themselves, you know, frantically calling their agents and making all kinds of uh, personal appearances on the... On the uh, on the uh, Johnny Carson show to do their bits from their album, the whole thing, you know. This this is typical uh, of our century. Can you imagine how it would have been years ago uh, if, uh, if, uh, if if this uh, attitude had pertained, say, during the time of, uh, well, let's just take for argument's sake, any time, uh, let's take uh, the, uh, the Revolutionary War. Can't you see uh, this guy turning out this side-splitting uh, LP about uh, the Benedict Arnold mess? <laughs> you know, I can just see him. You know, and and they, they always get out, go out and get about a tenth-rate mimic. See, who plays George Washington? Why he was one of my best generals. I could just hear it. You know, Benedict Arnold, and uh, the whole bit. And, and then, of course, uh, they'd have to do a uh, what a fantastic series of LPs could have been turned out by one of these little schlock LP companies at about the time of, uh, let's say, uh, the secession of the South. Can't you just hear him having a hell of a lot of fun doing uh, Lincoln's accent? And, uh, oh, yeah, that, that would have been a goodie. And, <laughs> and, and, and so showbiz, this is the century of showbiz, where no matter what happens, it makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Can you imagine how many folk singers the last ten years would have had a hell of a lot of time on their hands and very little money coming in if there hadn't been a Vietnamese war at all? Can you imagine what it would have been like? Vietnamese, no Vietnamese war. Uh, can you mention the, the, the careers that would never have gotten off the ground, Nick? And by the way, the number of careers who have gone down back to the ground uh, <laughs> since the end of the <laughs> Vietnamese, you know, the whatever happened to who know who what uh, thing. But there you are, it's all part of the time of our, of our, our days. And uh, when all is said and done, I suspect, uh, when you know, like 500 years from now when they when they're trying to figure out how the hell it was during the 20th century. Now, how, how it really was to live, uh, the only thing that will be left behind from our century really will be millions of LPs, all kinds of, uh, <laughs> you know, all kinds of uh, eight-track tapes, uh, various other artifacts of our time. And the people will wonder who those people were because they were much bigger. I mean, the people who made the LPs were much bigger than the people that they were making the LPs about. For example, the other night, uh, I had the misfortune to listen to an old Mort Saul record, 
and almost the entire half of the Mort Saul record was taken up with a, quote, side-splitting satirical view of a T. Lamar Caudle. That's right. You have every right to look confused, Nick. Who was T. Lamar Caudle? Well, at the time that this LP was made, he was a side-splitting figure of fun in the administration of that period, which goes to show you how the lasting value of these LPs. Who was he? Well, I listened to the whole LP trying to figure out who he was. And, uh, of course, I've never been a guy who's, who's really, uh, to me, uh, uh, all the shenanigans in all governments that have li- existed at all times are always just sources of mild amusement to me. I have not, because uh, they pass. You know, this just goes on and on and on. And uh, people who get deeply involved in that sort of thing, that's their bag. I'm not going to put them down for that. But then again, the other people like chess and some people like backgammon and other people like pornies. Uh, you know, everybody into his own his own thing, and I, I find uh, <laughs> well, in some ways they're all intertwined. You can see that there's a, there's a direct connection, the games playing principle. Uh, hey, uh, let's see. Do you have that thing here for uh, sweet and low? You get it in there. Oh, it's live. It says use too much sugar in iced tea and iced coffee. Get sweet and low, the perfect sugar sugar substitute. Sweet and low is featured at all fine foods and drugstores. That's what it says here. Sweet and low, sweet and low, la da dee dee. What made me think of that? Now that's that's a product of a depraved mind. Uh, we have another little thingy here. Would you please hit the chock full of nuts button, please, Nicholas? Please. Here it comes. Chock full of nuts. Her again. She's right out of trivia. Chocolate known as the heavenly coffee, because it's made from a blend of the most flavorful coffees that money can buy. And now, Chocolate has a decaffeinated coffee, 98% caffeine-free, which is made from the same blend of the world's finest coffee beans. Please try it and enjoy heavenly flavor and decaffeinated coffee, 98% caffeine-free. Your grocer has it, so ask for chock full of nuts, 98% caffeine-free coffee. And have heavenly dreams. Let's sing it out. No matter how late you drink it. Let's sing it. No, no, no song at the end? Chock full of nuts is such heavenly coffee, heavenly coffee, heavenly coffee. Chock full of nuts is such heavenly coffee. Better coffee money. What the hell is it? Better coffee a millionaire's money can't buy. Is that it? What a terrible phrase. Yeah, well, that's all right. Uh, good coffee, though, I can tell you that. <laughs> hey, you remember when, speaking of trivia, you know, nobody ever talks about the little TV shows that never were big and just were local. Do you remember when there was a chock full of nuts girl television show on at night? Do you remember that? Yeah, and, and the guy used to play the piano or something, and this lady would sing, and she would come on and sing the theme song, Chuck Wildenauts, it is such a heavenly coffee. Don't you remember that? Now, why do I remember this? Why do I remember when they used to have a sexy weather girl that would come on at the end of the day? Do you remember that one? And she'd lay on the on the floor and look like a, she'd say, Hello, Tiger. you remember that? Who is that girl? 
Oh, Patricia McCann, you're out of your bird. Who was the... <laughs> who was the... <laughs> <laughs> who was the girl who used to lie down? Remember, she's a fantastically sexy thing, and she'd lay on the ground there, or on on that looked like a white bearskin rug, and uh, she would say, "And tomorrow the temperature will be forty-seven degrees." You remember that? She'd say, uh, "Good night, Tiger." It was a sexy weather forecast. Well, that's the kind of stuff we ought to bring back. That was television, but <laughs> it had a little, you know, it was a lot more than uh, had a lot more to going for it than what's the. Uh, Television had a certain style. All right, who is it? What was the? Yeah, it did. What was the? Uh, speaking of, uh, of of late night shows that were on, that uh, have disappeared long since into the void, that great Sargasso Sea of old kinescopes, you know, floating around in the muddy waters, the murky waters of the the back alleys of old agencies that are on hard times. <laughs> this is W O R New York, and there's no connection there, friends, none whatsoever, but. Uh, the, uh, you know, if, if you're a real television fan, you'd, you'd know these things. I mean, uh, what, what uh, for example, there was a television show here in New York on at that time. At the same time that that lady, that sexy lady, used to say, Good night, Tiger. Uh, she's, by the way, making movies, that girl, you know. Yeah, that uh, Tiger-type girl. Uh, in fact, this was the time when there was all kinds of television weather girls. They've not long since disappeared. Every every show had a had a jazzy looking chick, and whenever she would come on, and uh, she would finish her weather, uh, the the credits would go by, and they would uh, give it. Uh, there would be a credit to the um, costuming of the weather girl, and uh, who are some of the top weather girl? Yeah, that's right. Uh, she used to say, "Have a happy." What about the other one though? There was one whose last name uh, I'll give you a clue. Whose last name was a a now uh, very, very, uh, uh, let's put it this way, the value goes up and down a uh, piece of American monetary unit. She was a weather girl. She was, huh? That's right. You got the last name. You could hardly miss it with my, you know, I don't think there's many girls on there named Nickel or Dime. All right, the last name was Dollar. What? Don't you remember the unforgettable Lynn Dollar? Yeah, you know, she'd stand there with a pointer all the time. She had this uh, very sexy look on her face, and she'd say, uh, and there's an occluded front coming in from the upper Midwest. And everybody was watching her occluded front, you know. <laughs> yeah, there was a certain style to television. Instead of uh, all these very serious-looking guys now, you know, with their horn rim glasses that keep pointing at weather charts, huh? Uncle Wethby? Of course I remember Uncle Wethby. That was another one of the major uh, cultural accomplishments of the period, Uncle Wethby. Uh, but the <laughs> these late-night TV shows, you know, speaking of uh, cultural accomplishments of that period, uh, and it's a hot type of day and the hot uh, temperatures are coming out. I'm, I'm debating now whether or not I should tell the story because there have been innumerable, in, uh, let's put it this way, innumerable requests for this particular story. Uh, Nick, do you recall a story that I once told? In fact, I've told, I've told this story on several occasions. Well, uh, I'm debating whether I should tell that tonight or whether I should save it for a more felicitous time, which uh, probably, say, like in the middle of July or sometimes when it's really hot, because the great ice cream... Do you remember the story at all, Jerry? You don't. 
Well, all right, I'll tell you. You want me to tell the story? Well, I'll tell you what you have to do. Then you have to go ahead and set up Shepard's famous little art theater production company here. Uh, get the, uh, Look into my pile of records there and see if you can find Ballet Mechanique. And uh, we, will, we will proceed from that uh, point of departure there. <laughs> well, you got it in there, Nick? Okay, you set it up, Nick, and I'll wait till you get it queued up, and uh, that's uh, very necessary to this little story. You set it up, and uh, when it comes on, you come on with that big and strong. You know, hit it like a bear in heat, right? Okay? All right. Well, I'll tell you what the, what the story really is, because this, this, this is a legend. I, I, it happened to me. What set me to tell the story off uh, some time ago was... Um, Occasionally, I get, very occasionally, I get back to my hometown. And for the benefit of those of you who have mistaken my hometown for a long time, it is not a small town. Uh, I, I hasten to rush right into the gap and tell you that. Every time I tell a story about Indiana, all the New Yorkers tend to believe that any story about Indiana is about small Well, nothing could be further from the... at least my Indiana... Have you ever been through that section of the country, Nick? Well, you know that ain't the small town. In fact, <laughs> I will tell you that, that small town life is lived far more in the city of New York than it is where I came from. For one reason, that the neighborhood concept is a big deal in New York City. And uh, it was not in the area that I lived in, which was a tremendous big industrial center. And, uh, you know, steel mills, it, the entire city was rimmed with steel mills, and you could see them in the, at night. And this is right now, this minute, so don't last. I was just back there a couple of weeks ago, and this mill just lays out there like a, like a distant mountain range. Yep. Friends, I'm going to tell you about one of the hellish jobs <laughs> that I've had in my lifetime. If you, if you guys sitting out there think you had, uh, had great jobs, I just want you to listen to this one. I was 16, right, and it was summertime. I had a job in the mill. Now, I was working uh, for, the, for the mail department, which was really a white-collar job. We used to deliver mail. We'd drive in a truck around the plant and deliver mail. We'd run through all the various mills. And, of course, part of being a mail boy, uh, working in the mail department in the mill, nothing like being a mail boy in, a, in an office here in, in the city. Absolutely a different job entirely. This is a guy who has to know the mill so intimately that it takes roughly six to eight months to learn every office, every name, and every specific operation in the mill. So if you get a, if you get a, a, a little inner plant envelope and it says uh, number two scale yard, well, instantly you know where the number two scale yard is. Or you may get a, a thing that says uh, number three shale scrap distributor. <laughs> Millions of little things like that. See, so, so here I am. I'm running around the mill delivering this mail. And... Uh, and on this one day, I came running into the, to one of the offices. In fact, it was the, uh, the 40-inch rail mill. There's a rail mill office where they make rails, the rails for trains. See, I come running into the rail mill office, and this is a Friday afternoon. I come charging in with my mail. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I come running in there. And remember, I was, I was a, a large-type kid for my age. In fact, I played football, and this is how I got the job at this steel mill. This, this steel mill had a thing for athletes. And uh, anybody who was an athlete who played local baseball or football on one of the high school teams automatically got a job there if he wanted it, see. And uh, one of these great jobs. 
Uh, you'll never guess who was the... Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you all when we get off the air. Who was the... Uh, who was working there at the time as a, uh, a major league ball player. And during the winter time, he had a job with this mill. I'll tell you later on. And he is in charge of the department I worked in. And they used to take us out once in a while and show us how his arm really worked. So, nevertheless, I was running into this mill on this day. See, this is a, an office where they make uh, rails. And if you're curious about uh, rails, this is a very, very expensive process, making rails for trains. Very expensive type uh, steel used in it. It's a highly technical process. And the guys that worked in the rail mill were kind of elite types. <laughs> you know, every, every mill has its own little series of... Uh, of uh, hierarchies, and the guys in the rail mill were very official types. You know, they they produced like uh, like really elegant steel, and so I kept rushing into this office on this day. And it was a guy I was always kidding with uh, one of the guys in the office there. I came in, I had my my mail sack, and and I threw the mail on his desk, and he said, "Hey," he said, uh, "Hey, Shep," and I said, "Yeah." He said, uh, "You think you work pretty hard, right?" I said, uh, "Yeah." yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. And he says. Uh, Listen, he said, uh, how'd you like to make a little dough tomorrow? Well, see, I was off Saturday. That was the day after. See, Saturday was my day off. So he says, how'd you like to pick up an extra trick tomorrow? I said, uh, gee, yeah. He said, well, listen, I'm going to call down to personnel. He said, uh, and uh, how about you reporting here at the 40-inch uh, rail mill office tomorrow morning at 8? And he said, uh, I'll call the uh, office he said, hey, you got safety shoes? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, everybody in the mill had to wear safety shoes. He says, well, bring your safety shoes along. And uh, he says, you report here at 8 o'clock tomorrow. He says, you're going to have some fun. Well, I did not realize what I was about to get into. I just figured, you know, here's my chance to make some extra dough, you know, make some overtime. It was Saturday morning, and it was a hot summer Saturday weekend-type situation. I think, you know, groovy. That uh, Saturday night, I'm going to have a lot of dough, see? <laughs> so because when you work a special trick like that, I explained something to you. When you worked a special trick that was in a department that was not your own, you were on what they called detached service from your department, and you were paid in cash at the end of that day at the personnel payroll place. So I thought, gee, this is great. You know, I'm going to get some, some, some real folded money for, uh, uh, we'll have a big date, you know, Saturday night. So that Friday night, I called up this chick, see, and I said, listen, I said, I got I to... Gotta, a job, I'm going to do an extra job Saturday, and I'm going to make some dough. So how would you like to go into town? We're going to Chicago. You know, we gotta, I'll get the car. We'll drive in, have dinner, and a whole bit, see, Saturday night. So she says, fine, great, see. Little did I realize. So quarter to eight the next morning, I, you know, I got my safety shoes on. I got my, my goggles. You, you see, when you worked in this part of the mill, by regulation, both government and mill regulations, you had to wear the hard hat. We had hard hat. We had big heat safety glasses. These are different than the kind of glasses you see the guys use down here when they're working uh, street machinery. These are safety heat glasses, uh, which means that they have dark uh, blue-purple type lenses, which resist heat because you can burn your eyes, believe it or not. You burn the surface of your eyes, Nick, in the steel mill by opening your eyes, simply opening your eyes too close to heated material. You scorch the cornea. So you have to wear a special type of heat-resistant glass. It's a dark, uh, curious purple color. And uh, so I had on my glass, the whole bit, see the glasses and stuff. And so I, I show up at quarter to eight. Here's my, my buddy, uh, by the way, Arnie is his name. So I walk in and said, 
How are you, Arnie? And he says, oh, he said, oh, you made it. And he, said, uh, he said, listen, he said, uh, he said, do you go downstairs now? And he says, go down to the go down to Soaking Pit's office and tell Thompson that you're the kid I was sending down. So I said, okay, Arnie. He said, uh, good luck. I said, uh, okay, Arnie. So down the steps I go. These were iron steps like they have in the mill. And I go across the yard, and there's the 40-inch Soaking Pit, which uh, was dark. It has a curious, dark, uh, subterranean quality about it. And there were about 15 of these pits all in a row, great pits, with these enormous cranes that moved up above them and tracks, railroad tracks, that ran in between them that would carry the ingots in and out of this place. It was a long black shed that was roughly a half mile long, uh, maybe uh, 100, 120 feet high. Tremendous black, uh, this corrugated metal shed. So I walk into the 40-inch soaking pit office, you know, there's, walk through there, and there's this guy, Thompson. I used to deliver mail to Thompson, Howard Thompson. See, it's always been a name to me. Now he's, now he's a real guy. See, so I walk in, and there's Howard Thompson sitting there, and he's got this black jacket on. He's got the safety shoes, and he's drinking coffee. And I walk in, and I said, uh, Thompson? He said, yeah. I said, I'm the kid that Arnie sent. Oh, yeah, okay. He said, uh, open the locker there, pull your stuff. I said, what stuff? He said, oh, it's in the locker there. Take, take the stuff out of there. And he said, come on over and sign out a slip on that stuff. So I walk over there, and I open the locker. There was about ten lockers inside this little crummy little wooden office. I walk over and open this, this locker up. And I pull, I, I look in there, and here inside the locker is an asbestos suit. Now, an asbestos, it, it's, it's a two-piece suit. It's, it's, a, it's a big jacket that fits over your jacket, and it has tight... Uh, tight uh, connectors, like fasteners, uh, strap fasteners at, at the waist, strap around the waist, and around the wrists. It's, it's a kind of a whitish, grayish, asbestos uh, impregnated heavy canvas with a big, uh, big number on the back, uh, 1237 slash underneath it says inland steel. And, and the pants were big, wide, canvas, uh, asbestos impregnated pants that had, t- like big ski pants is what they really were. See, so I pull these pants on, I put this thing on, and uh, he gives me these big gauntlet gloves, these big uh, uh, big heavy leather things that come up all the way practically to the elbow, see, and they're covered with asbestos. And he says, uh, he says, go on down, he said, uh, I think manually, he says, go on, see manually, he's down on pit number two. So I walk out of the office, now I'm dressed like a, like a deep sea diver, I got this helmet on, the purple glasses. I got the I got the white uh, suit on with the numbers on the back, and I walked down through the pits. And it was then that the hell began. I see standing next to pit number two, this crowd of guys. There was about eight or nine guys, all sort of huddled down in their working scene. They've got ropes and stuff going down into this pit, and all kinds of tools and junk laid out there. And there were there were big cans of stuff, and uh, he. I walk up to this guy, absolutely covered with dirt and crud. He's got black stuff all over him, and, and he's got a wild look in the eyes. See, is Pedro down there. And so I walk up to Pedro, and I said, uh, Pedro, I'm, I, I'm the guy that Thompson sent up. He said, all right, yeah, okay. He said, all right, get over there in the end. He said, we're going to go down now. Let's go. I said, what the hell are we going to do? He said, well, grab your chipping tool. We're going to move out. He figured I knew all about it, see. So grab your chipping guy. I said, I don't know what to do. He said, you just go down and do what the rest of the guys do. He said, you're allowed to do that. Three minutes down, three minutes up, three minutes down. You get a ten-minute break at the end of the hour. 
What the hell? So I go to the end of the line with a bunch of other guys. There's about nine of us that are standing there absolutely silently, and these guys have got chipping tools. Now, what a chipping tool looks like, it looks like a heavy metal bar with a handle on it that you can put your hand around. Uh, your left hand goes around the top. Your right hand holds down at the bottom. It's like a pistol grip. And the, the bottom of it is like, it's well, really, in effect, is a big cold chisel is what it is. The bottom has a chipping kind of a heavy blade at the bottom. And, and uh, I hear a whistle going. Pedro is blowing a whistle. And I see coming up out of the pit, they have a, a, uh, an elevator that's made out of, out of this heavy corrugated metal. And they're pulling guys out on pulleys. Up comes a crowd of guys wearing big black glasses. They have these big hats on, which, by the way, are handed to the next crowd. <laughs> and these guys sit down on the ground with their mouths hanging open. <laughs> and they're coughing. <laughs> and they hand me one of the helmets. I put my helmet down over my hard hat. It's just a big shroud, really, of, of uh, canvas uh, impregnated with asbestos. I put on the big glasses, and I step on this this elevator along with the other six guys and we are lowered down into the pit. The pit. Hear the expression, friends? The pit. I know what the pit is like. I have been in hell. So when people come and tell me that I'm going to be doomed to a lifetime in the afterglory of existence to hell, friends, I know what it's like. Each one of us, now I'm going to give you the final piece de resistance. Each one of us had strapped to the bottom of our feet, Nick, to the bottom of our safety shoes. They have strapped wooden clogs that are roughly three to four inches thick. The wooden clogs strap over your shoes, and the bottom of the wooden clogs have a heavy slate-like sole that is deeply corrugated. They lower us down into the pit, and I can't believe what the scene is down there. Everything is sort of vaguely red and moldering because this is red hot down there. The temperature is roughly in the vicinity of 200 to 215 degrees. As you step off of the elevator, your shoes begin to burn. And you begin to chip away at this thing. Chipping away. Chip, 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 chip. And you can see the steam rising. And you begin to feel that heat looking into the very gut of your life. And you're looking through those dark glasses, and all around you are these guys leaning over onto their chipping tools with the steam and the smoke arising. One minute goes by, and the heat is getting unbelievable. Two minutes go by. The heat, you can't stand it any longer. You can feel the sweat going down the inside of your pants. And now you're, I'm beginning to get hazy in the vision. And then all of a sudden, from the far distance, I hear beep, beep. And I see my fellow victims all moving towards the elevator. We start moving up off the floor of the pit. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I'm at the top. I take my hat off. I sit down on the ground. And now the second ship comes up, 
and we pull our helmets down, and back into the pit we go. <laughs>